0: Hi everyone, it's Dr. Goyle here from Peak Human Podcast, and today I have Dr. Andrew Hill, a neuroscientist at Peak Brain in Los Angeles, and uh, also teaching at UCLA in gerontology. Welcome, Dr. Hill, I'm so excited to have you here today. And- uh, Thank we, you, Dr. Goyle, nice to see you. We last met about a year a year ago in, in Sweden, and I was just mm-hmm. so enthralled uh, by what you were doing, that I was like, let's open up a Peak Brain right here in Toronto. And, uh, unfortunately it hasn't get started yet, but you know, I thought let we need to bring the world more of what you're doing. So, um, maybe just, I would love to just tell me a little, tell us a little bit about yourself, what's what you're doing and, and then sure. I'd love to jump into uh, your thoughts on mental illness.
1: Sure. So, um, thanks for the introduction. I'm of course, a, a peak performance coach mostly, which means that I help people find the bottlenecks in performance in their brain health and their brain performance. Um as you mentioned, I do neurofeedback or biofeedback on the brain, most people that do that are therapists. right? And so, peak brain's a little unusual in that we treat this much more like personal training mm-hmm. than like um, mental illness care or health care. So it's not so much about here's what's wrong, it's about trying to find the bottlenecks in performance and then um, you know we really operate much more on like what are your goals perspective than what are the mm-hmm. symptoms perspective in terms of getting people there. Um, like it's a more of a well met. care,
0: more of a well care rather than a sick care. Is that how you're thinking? Yeah,
1: exactly. And it's not about fixing problems, it's about getting you the resources you want. So mm-hmm. you can come in with ADHD, we can get, eliminate that, but you can come in with some distractibility, we can work on that too. It doesn't mean it's necessarily just a, you know, fixing sort of problems. Um, but so yeah, we, we mostly work in an area called neurofeedback. Let me uh, break down that for you a little bit. Um, brain mapping is usually the first thing that we talk about. Mm-hmm. when talking about neurofeedback. So the formal name for this is QEEG, quantitative EEG. right? And QEEG is a uh, often misunderstood discipline. Um, brain mapping is really, really, really informative, but not necessarily diagnostic. And it's important to draw the difference. Um, brain mapping, we explain the technique. We put a cap on your head yep. and squirt it full of gel. And we have you sit still for several minutes of eyes closed and eyes open baseline recordings.
0: Yeah, and I had, and that, compare done your,
1: right, you I had that done. I did. We have yes. your brain in the yeah. can. I have your brain here. Right. Um, so we take the baselines and compare them to a normative database yes. of several thousand people and see how unusual your particular brain is compared to other people your age. And brains change very, very slowly. So a population comparison on you today and one on you in like a year is the same. So the population comparisons, though, out of those analyses come sort of heat maps, where we're looking at standard deviations of how unusual the amount of brain waves, or the speeds of brain waves, connectivity mm-hmm. patterns. So from those differences, you know, the, the the data is real. Here's how different you are than average. But mm-hmm. then the meaning we make of that difference is the hypothesis or the sort of art form, if you will, of qEEG. Right. We don't care that you aren't average. The goal isn't to say why aren't you average and make you average. The goal is to find the ways in which you are most unusual that that might suggest a bottleneck in performance and figure out if that is valid for you. The most valid marker in the brain maps are the theta-beta ratio. It's a very robust marker in the brain. If your theta-beta ratio is high, you have some impulsivity. If it's above about two and a half, it's ADHD for most adults.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, The theta-beta ratio is 94% accurate in blindly sorting ADHD and non-ADHD brains into sort of buckets um, without doing any clinical interviewing, just simply on the, on the data. That's the most valid marker we have. Everything else is sort of a hypothesis generator where I can say, you know, this pattern often shows up when someone deals with issues in this stress resource, that attention resource, sleep, mood, trauma, injury, but I won't know if it's true unless the person says, oh yeah, that sounds right for me and, you know, it's something I want to work on. So alongside the brain maps, which give us a bunch of ideas about what is true, we also look at attention performance. We do executive function testing for sustained focus, vigilance, alertness, and we tease apart the audio versus visual attention performance and also the short term versus sort of sustained uh, resources of attention. And that's a very valid immediate read on your performance. And that contrasted with the brain maps give me a sense of where the biggest uh, bottlenecks for you likely are. And then uh, the next step would be neurofeedback. So people, once they know where the biggest bottlenecks are, decide what they want to work on. So again, it's kind of like walking into a personal training center and saying, hey, help me figure out where I'm not strong. And the personal trainer goes through your body and goes, "Ah, eh, your left side stronger than your right side. And you could use some core strength. And you hear that and go, ooh, abs? I want abs. Oh, okay. Let's give you the ab program alongside everything else you want. So, I'm drawing that sort of silly analogy only because it's not being done to you at peak brain. It's really about your own goals, your own, you know, perspective, on what's important to you, the same way an athlete might have their goals, you know, as opposed to the patient who it's more about what the doctor thinks is important. I, I joke, and I, I mean no offense to you as a medical doctor, sir, but I, I, I joke now that you pay a doctor to tell you what they do know, and you pay a scientist to tell you what they don't know. Right. And a lot of my job is not to give you answers, is to ask you all the right questions and help you identify where the performance bottlenecks are. And so I start with the brain mapping, and then we exercise the brain using biofeedback or neurofeedback, which is just biofeedback on the brain. And the process of biofeedback, let me explain that for a second. Mm -hmm. Um, When training the EEG, the electricity of the brain, most neurofeedback is done passively. What I mean is we don't zap the brain with electricity. There are forms of neurofeedback that do. But most neurofeedback measures what the brain is doing on its own. Right. For instance, the theta and the beta amounts, the amplitude of those brain waves. And moment to moment, your brain is changing. It's not static. So whenever your brain happens on its own to shift for half a second in the right direction, lower theta, higher beta, for instance, for better focus, mm-hmm. we would go, good job, brain, and applaud the brain with audio and visual streams of information. And when the brain moves in the wrong direction, the theta goes back up, the audio visuals stop. So how essentially
0: it, you're watching um, a pack. How do, I mean, how does the, you provide that audio and visual
1: feedback? I, I,
0: I mean, I someone yeah, know so the answer, said, but, but if you could just explain
1: that, cause I think that's. Sure, that's, that's sure, yeah, is. absolutely. So you sit in front of a computer screen. Yeah. Um, a big. We have a big TV here. In the, I'm, I'm sitting in one of the training rooms right now, big TV screen on the wall. Yeah. There's a little orange box here over my right shoulder. That's the EEG amplifier. Mm-hmm. And so it stuck three wires to my head if I was training, a couple of ear clips, and one wire on the top of my head for a part of the brain I might wanna measure or exercise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then under that location of the electrode, and on the right side of the brain it's usually sort of attention resources we train up, you'll measure the brain waves moment to moment under a specific electrode. Yes, And that part of the brain will be changing moment to moment. So whenever it changes in the right direction, more stuff happens on the computer screen. So, and in your, this case, and your
0: brain just likes more stuff. Like, that's what I'm trying to say. Like, it's not that you're exactly doing anything special with what that stimulation is, just any stimulation, right. your brain takes it as,
1: like, we like that exactly. Is that right? Exactly. It doesn't matter what it is a simple audio beep that only beeps when your brain does one thing, mm-hmm. the brain likes the beep. Even things you don't like, like a really annoying sound, would work as a reward because only positive reinforcement works in a neurofeedback context. So, mm. it, but, but yeah, you're getting into some, some of the more nuanced things. The, right. the, the, the take-home message here is that it's actually involuntary because you can't right. control your brain waves. So we're measuring what your brain's doing moment to moment and providing stimulus for some of the things it's doing and not others. And what happens is it likes stimulus, as you pointed out. So later on today, tonight, tomorrow the brain does a little bit more of what produced more stimulus in the half hour training session. So you don't feel the session usually, or maybe a tiny bit of fatigue or alertness or something very subtle. But then over the next 24 hours, the brain reacts as if you exercised, and the certain resources that get shifted, you feel change a little bit. So maybe your sleep onset was different, or your alertness is different, or your stress response felt more under your control. And so the process of neurofeedback is sort of like, again, working with a trainer, where you exercise, see what happens, iterate, try it again, gradually push the brain and resources further and further until the person has a shifted set of resources. And then the way we work is we map your brain
0: mm-hmm.
1: and measure your attention every 20 sessions. 20 so six, I typically so. do, a, th- yeah, I do like a three month period of, t- of training initially for most clients, right. which is 40 sessions of training. We map your brain at the beginning, middle, and end of that first 40 session chunk and I can usually get a couple of standard deviations of change in your attention performance and in your brain map resources that we go after in that three months. So that's a clinically, context,
0: clinically significant change. Is what it's
1: huge, it's huge. It means going from profoundly ADHD to minimally, or having lots of seizures to occasional seizures, or mm-hmm. major anxiety or PTSD to minimal anxiety or PTSD. It oh, wow. almost always eliminates symptoms dramatically in three to four months for the big things like stress, sleep, attention. More nuanced things, more subtle or psychological things can take longer. Mm -hmm. Like depression isn't a resource in the brain. I can't point at your brain maps and go, oh, there's depression. No. I can maybe see a few hints of it, but Mm -hmm. I can point at your brain and find resources for impulsivity, inattention, uh, anxiety features. Extra active anterior cingulate is OCD or some sort of perseveration. Extraactive mm-hmm. posterior cingulate is a threat sensitivity, a, an evaluator, or a PTSD kind of you know flavored uh, resource strain. Mm-hmm. But depression is a human experience, a reaction, if you will, to those resources being pinched. Mm-hmm. So if you tell me you're depressed, well, first of all, I'll say to you, I'm not a psychologist. I'm a neuroscientist. So who else is on your team, and you know, should we bring them in? But I would try to figure out again, you know, drop one level below the diagnostic language to figure out which resource is this person talking about. Depression can show up, for instance, as frontal asymmetry, frontal lobes reversed, the opposite direction. It can show up as your processing speed having been dragged down over time. Your alpha, alpha waves running slow. It can show up in a bunch of different ways. I wouldn't know which of those patterns is most likely the bottleneck for your mood, buoyancy, or resiliency. So to some extent, I work broadly like a personal trainer might when the first person walks into their gym and says, hey, make me fit. Yes. If the person is not especially practiced in exercise, you don't start with the hardcore, heavy duty sculpting exercises. You go after broad foundational things. And at Peak okay. Brain, I always start with sleep, stress, mood, attention, broad resources, and then gradually start building on top of those.
0: Let's talk about those because sleep, stress, attention, and what's the last one you said? Mood. 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 So yeah. uh, you told me what attention was, theta beta ratio, right? Yeah, and how and it's, alpha, yeah,
1: and an alpha. alpha as well. So, so um, attention's a bunch of things. The inability to inhibit, mm-hmm. to not be impulsive or reactive, is a theta beta, but the other end of it, engaging the resources, is the ability to shut down the neutral frequency alpha and engage the active frequency beta. Right. So essentially, those are executive function and uh, then, resources.
0: And then you said how would how would sleep show up? Like what type of yeah too much anxiety so really, or or what would that look like? I'm sorry. Too much beta? or What what would that look like?
1: Good, very good guess, yes. So that can show up. Um, If you have a sleep maintenance issue, meaning you wake up a lot throughout the night and you can't fall back asleep, usually there's a little hot spot of beta in the middle of the head or even fast beta, high beta frequencies in the middle of the head and I almost always get sort of generalized anxiety complaints along with that. And the metaphor here is the brain can't let go of the world, so it's kind of cresting through sleep all night long, easily roused, woken up easily. Uh, In contrast, a a slower frequency beta, maybe a little more anterior, would be a sleep onset difficulty. You can't turn your mind off. It's chattering at you all night long. You can't shut off the mind initially to fall asleep. So those are two hints of an onset or a maintenance issue. I might see that your delta waves, your deep, dreamless sleep waves, are running way faster than they should when you're awake, at which point Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, this might mean that you're not getting enough deep, dreamless sleep, so when you're awake, your brain's pushing back and browning out, and you're micro-sleeping when you're awake. And If the sleep consequences are severe enough, I would then see your alpha waves drag down in speed, which would predict processing speed issues, i.e. afternoon sluggish thoughts, and word-finding issues as almost like a short-term memory complaint. All those would be sleep or sort of speed or rest kind of indications. And then we also might see when your eyes were open, if you have little focal spots of high delta, that part of the brain itself is stuck in sleep mode, which isn't a sleep issue. It could be, but more likely it's an old concussion or some wear and tear, keeping one little spot of the cortex from waking up fully and then from going down into deep sleep. So but for all these things, Uh, Dr. Gould, I I wouldn't say, oh, here's what's true for you. I'd say, you know, this often means this resource is pinched or this experience is happening. And then the person's job is to say, does that sound plausible and valid or not? And then to say if it's important to work on, because I don't choose for you what your goals are. Mm -hmm. So first, is this valid? And second, is it something you want to change is usually the conversation.
0: So, uh, you know, a lot of this mapping is happening when they're awake and not when they're asleep? Yes. Have, have yes. you ever done? Do you ever do mapping when people are asleep? Like if you want to confirm mm-hmm. something or is that not needed? Because you could take enough from a, the daytime mapping to
1: understand. It's a great happening. question. It's a great question. The question you just asked is the difference between a neurologist and a neurofeedback person. Mm. Um, neurologists mostly do sleep based EEG. Right. And most EEG is driven by the sleep world, mm-hmm. sleep studies, apnea, that kind of stuff. Right. In neurofeedback, the brain mapping databases, the QEEG databases, are resting baselines we compare you to that are done awake, eyes open and eyes closed, and off of caffeine. So to get a clinical sense of your resting baselines, I have to match your conditions, Mm -hmm. eyes open, eyes closed, and off of caffeine. So I can learn something as a neuroscientist from your brain if I measure your brain when you're asleep. Hmm. But I can't do a clinical comparison against the reference database because I have a sleep Because they're all awake, and they're all nineteen-channel sort of sleep low-density databases as well. This is why we do sleep density nineteen-channel EEGs for quantitative EEG. If I'm doing source analysis, taking EEG off your head and solving for where in your brain it's coming from and for which frequency it is, then a very dense array seventy electrodes mm-hmm. will give me spatial precision equal to MRI. So then I want more electrodes. But for clinical practice, we're bound by the the clinical tools. And the um, you being compared to a normative sample, the only references essentially are eyes open, eyes closed, awake. So, so is so. the
0: science of the uh, increasing with regard to who's building this database? Are people are are people now start to look and build a better database? I mean, how's who's contributing to this data? And- Great
1: questions. Oh. I guess such good questions. Um, the short answer is there are some people building more brain mapping databases, Q- EEG databases. Mm-hmm. However. Um, They're still mostly not changed from the past 20, 30, 40 years. Um, There's a wonderful paper by my QEEG mentor, a guy named Jack Johnstone, Dr. Johnstone, who died a couple years ago, but Mm -hmm. a paper written in 2005 called Clinical Database or Characterization of Clinical EEG Databases. And Dr. Johnstone raised this idea we have endophenotypes, patterns in the brain or in the body that don't rise to diagnostic labels and cross diagnostic boundaries, but are indications of resources being pinched. Mm-hmm. And in that paper, Dr. Johnstone um, goes over the, the time, the five commercial databases that existed, the sample sizes, how they got their data, and gives you a breakdown of the strengths and weaknesses of all of them. And that was you know, more than 10 years ago. The databases all still exist. Mm-hmm. There's only about two more. It's like maybe 10 products total in the field. And most of them have not changed in the past several decades. So the problem with neurofeedback technology, even though it's accelerating, we're getting cheaper tech and better, you know, faster uh, hardware and things, a lot of the tech we use is still kind of cutting edge circa 1985 or something. You know, mm-hmm. So it's the games we use often look kind of pixelated and yes. the software we use looks like it's old school screens because this is a niche area of technology and there has not been price pressure or development pressure for a long time. And I think it's about to change. I think the BCI world and the neurofeedback world are colliding and they're gonna change each other. But for now, even though the software we're using is very, very sophisticated, the games we use aren't all that sexy. And this has kept a lot of the field, you know, the field is full of people who, in North America, where we are, there's about 5,000 total people who do neurofeedback. Right. Worldwide, 10,000 total. There's probably 5,000 chiropractors in Los Angeles where I am. It's, so,
0: it's so effective. So then why, what do you think is the barrier that, that getting this out there? I mean, Ooh. you said basically you could solve ADHD. I have, like again, 10 parents a day who come to me with these types of issues. So
1: why is this not getting out there in the mainstream? It's a great question. Um, there's a few answers. The research backing for neurofeedback has lagged by the clinical efficacy by decades.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, I can, you give me 100 people with ADHD, I'll turn out 95 without ADHD 3 to 4 months later, reliably. It's incredibly effective for that. Right. Or people with seizures, I'll drop your seizures by half on average. Okay. Amazing. Reliably, crazy. Reliably yeah. and involuntarily, effortlessly and in a few weeks. It's amazingly rapid and effective. But, you know, why don't we all have amazing cardiovascular health and abs? We know how to get those things. <laughs> Right. But it takes some practice. It's hard. Time. It's hard work. <laughs> it's hard work. You have to go three times a week for a few yeah. months. So right. the, you know, in the context of mental health, would rather right. swallow Adderall or a sleeping med Quick fix. than take care of the underlying problem because we have this perspective of pill, you know, treating the symptoms, not treating the causes or the underlying root. Mm. Um, that's one answer. Western you know, consumer society is too lazy to go do the work. Right. The other thing is it takes some sophistication to get the hardware, the software, the QEEG databases. I mean it's it's fairly expensive. It's 10 grand of hardware and software for a training mm-hmm. station. It's about twice that for an assessment station. Mm-hmm. But that's not the barrier. The barrier is how do you do this stuff? You know, what do you do to the brain when something happens you don't expect? It's an so art. The, that, it's an art. An art. The field yeah. is, is, is apprentice driven. I'm only the third generation in the field right. and it's been around for 51 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Other answers to your question include the fact that to do a large clinical trial, you have to a spend about five million dollars these days. Nobody owns neurofeedback.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Who's going to get paid back for the study? So no one's doing it. Another wrinkle there is that it's until very very recently it's been hard to blind neurofeedback. You couldn't blind EEG, so you couldn't do placebo-controlled studies. Now you can. I helped uh, test out a placebo-control module in the main commercial software for my grad project. So we did a placebo-controlled double-blind study on the ERPs to the reward event in the brain and found the brain is dramatically noticing real versus sham signals. It's a great study, but we're just now getting into placebo-controlled research. The last Mm -hmm. wrinkle is neurofeedback is individualized. Almost every practitioner does a different thing per person. How do you test that? when it's not group level analysis and group level intervention. So it's like exercise. all of these things have contributed to making amazing clinicians do amazing work, mm. but if you look at the research, you think we are where we were 20, 30 years ago. And it's it's I mean the American Academy of Pediatricians in 2012 moved neurofeedback up to level one best support for wow. ADHD. Okay. It is considered as efficacious a level one intervention for ADHD. The only other thing on that list are psychostimulants. And yet insurance companies in the u.s. do not cover neurofeedback in spite of the american academy saying oh it's a valid intervention
0: wow huh.
1: you know it's just been and, and the insurance companies have actively worked counter to neurofeedback in the past 51 years in uh it would save the money. you
0: would think they'd save the money and
1: they might think this is worth it perhaps perhaps yeah but i mean i have a lot of cynical reasons there but you know the, the field was discovered in the late 60s when sturm and dr barry sturm at ucla um, was exposing cats to rocket fuel at the at behest of NASA mm-hmm. because astronauts were getting sick from breathing in rocket fuel, and he was trying to figure out how dangerous this stuff was. Mm-hmm. And he found that for most of these cats, he was exposed to rocket fuel having perfect dose-dependent curves. You know, minutes of exposure equaled more symptoms. You know, uh, crying, drooling, seizure, coma, death, this perfect dose-dependent curve and a certain subset of the cats refused to have seizures, and he couldn't figure out why, mm-hmm. until he remembered he'd used those same cats months before in an experiment to do operant conditioning on a brainwave that cats make a lot of called SMR. Got it. Whenever the brainwave went up, he squirted chicken broth into their right. mouth. Right. Yeah, the SMR, right. Mm-hmm. And SMR, turns out, makes the brain seizure resistant. So he, months later, he had one subset of, of cats who refused to have seizures. Mm-hmm. He couldn't figure out why until he remembered they had been conditioned to make more SMR. And he, he then trained his lab manager and eliminated her seizures over the next several months. He published an initial brief of this, uh, he sent a submission of this paper to epilepsy the journal. Mm-hmm. And the very next day his funding was pulled for this NASA study. Wow. It's craziness <laughs> now is, is that a conspiracy maybe maybe not yeah. but at the same time or soon after in the 70s um, all the big drug companies were sending people to the Chad meetings in North America and mm-hmm. paying full-time MDs to poison the well against neurofeedback in the 70s and 80s Makes full-time yeah. time MD salaries paid by by uh, you know big drug sure. companies right. to go to Chad and poison the well actively against neurofeedback so mm-hmm. you know that was like 40 years ago. And the field has not appreciably changed. Mm-hmm. It's just as effective now as it was back then, mm-hmm. but it's proliferated, it's cheaper, it's faster. When Sternman was training his lab manager down, her seizures down, it took like a year and a half. Mm-hmm. We can get the same effect now in three or four months. So it's a much more efficient process, but it's still individual practitioners and scientists doing work on individual brains in a one-on-one you know, fitness almost perspective. This is why I I treat it this way instead of treating it like medicine because it's not quite as robust. It's closer. to, I call it functional neuroscience to some Mm -hmm. extent now, like functional medicine where Mm -hmm. you're picking up patterns and shapes and asking the right questions as opposed to saying discreetly, here's what's true for you. You're instead going, you know, this might be true for you. Is this like a thing that's worth paying attention to? Oh, it does? Great. Let's go after it and see what happens to your performance. Right. So, that's yeah. the, the long-winded answer about why we aren't doing it everywhere.
0: <laughs> so I want to ask a question uh, this is interesting to me that this is a much more permanent change is what you're saying and so what do, I just want to ask about medications and let's say psychostimulants and stuff How, what yeah. do you think the impact on the brain is there like uh, do you see that permanent changes happen in brain waves there uh, use of these medications No
1: there's, there's no there's no change in permanence from a psychostimulants in the absence of psychostimulants the brain's back to where it was. In general, most medication affects the brain for five half-lives of the med. Mm-hmm. So Adderall has got an 11-hour half-life or something. So for 50 hours, roughly, you've got an active Adderall signature in the brain where it suppresses theta, increases beta, for instance. Okay.
0: So is it a similar – so having a similar effect as training, that the brain waves are changing in the same way or is they it are, acting in a different manner? They,
1: they are. But, you know – What's interesting, I've read some studies recently showing what happens to kids who are on stimulants, on uh, neurofeedback interventions, or both, mm-hmm. looking at them years later. Yes, Because a lot of the studies looked at permanence, and they, they are finding that years later there's a permanent change. So that, that's, that's useful. What they've also been finding is kids who got stimulants had self-esteem issues, never learned how to study, how to trust their own brains, how to mm-hmm. focus, and they have the same issues with their executive function issues later on in life they never learned how to manage their own brains. So even though they were able to manage the impulsivity in the classroom, right. their grades are lower because they didn't actually learn how to apply their resources. But the ADHD kid who got neurofeedback got self-esteem. Even the ones that received both neurofeedback and stimulants had better self-esteem long-term than those who received only neurofeedback. So it's and, much more complex.
0: It, it may be more complex than just what the psychostimulants are doing. AD, ADD might be yeah. much more, might require different things. Than maybe well, ADHD like
1: is a complex phenomenon. Yeah. And I, and I really don't view it as a disease. I think it's a yeah. normal human resource. Like if you're, right. you know, we needed people who are hunters and we needed yeah. gatherers and they're both evolutionally beneficial. Mm-hmm. The problem now is that humans tend to get stuck. Well, people with ADHD get stuck in one of those two modes. Mm-hmm. You know, you're stuck in a hunter mode, you're noticing everything. You can't sit in a boardroom or a classroom mm-hmm. and be focused. Most humans can turn on the resource of being synthetic and being vigilant or hyper-focused mm-hmm. based on the environment, based on internal desire. ADHD relies on the environment to cue the strong resources. But the focus in ADHD, if you're a kid playing a video game or you're in a war zone, your focus is super normal. You're more focused than average. Right. But in the absence of that focus, you, know, you, you can play video games for 20 hours straight, but you can't sit in a classroom for 20 minutes without getting distracted and bored. and you know. So neurofeedback doesn't eliminate the gifts in ADHD. It gives you control over which mode you're in. So you want to be hyper focused playing Fortnite? Go for it. Want to be hyper focused in a boring classroom? Go for that too. And by the same token, your mom asked you to put the game controller down, and you you aren't hyper focused in the stimulus. You can shift gears better. You have more voluntary control over what your brain's doing.
0: It's just about shifting control. Really, that's what it, you're saying then, right? It's that's
1: well, I'm the saying ADHD issue. is the lack of ability. Lack to shift, of ability. To to shift. High yeah. theta state. Yeah. stuck in one of the two modes. Yeah. The brain yes, tends just, to go into for focus. That's right. Yeah.
0: Okay, and so one. Uh, one I guess um, a thing I wanted to jump on to just uh, mindfulness. What is the impact yeah. on, on the brain of mindfulness, and and uh, what do we normally see when you do the mapping of people who, who are practicing a lot in this? Yeah, their brain. Well,
1: mindfulness changes the brain over time. It doesn't change it rapidly. It takes many many weeks before you see the changes in a resting brain activity. Mm-hmm. Long term meditators, you know, decades okay. have a few interesting brain signatures. Um, first of all, the degree to which you meditate lifelong is the degree to which you are spared the normal cortical thinning that occurs with age, the lateral parts, the temporal, lobe, uh, the frontal lobes, the sort of okay. self-awareness, body awareness, feeding, those sorts of things, self-control that tends to thin out with age. And later in life, it's up to a third thinner, you know 60s, 70s, 80s, unless you meditate. The, the degree to which you meditate is the degree to which you sidestep normal cortical aging. Wow. So
0: you're saying like for, let's say, prevention of dementia, could this have an impact on that?
1: Uh, dementia is a very specific case, so maybe. But mm-hmm. normal aging, I'm saying non-pathological cortical thinning aging, the lack of self-awareness, self-body control, feeding, the, the normal stuff you don't love, but it's not an illness, that is easily sidestepped by meditating for 20 minutes a day.
0: So you're saying that dementia you feel is not a normal part of aging? Like our-
1: it is, is absolutely not. It is absolutely not a normal not part self- of aging. It's a disease, disease of aging... Mm-hmm. Um, dementia is also a symptom. I should, we should clarify yes. for those who aren't gerontologists that right. dementia is a symptom, meaning a memory issue within another disease process. So you have dementia from Alzheimer's or from Parkinson's or from Lewy body dementia or <clears throat> a handful of other things. But we often think about dementia in, in North America as being Alzheimer's. They're often interchangeable. Mm-hmm. In other countries, that is not the case. Like in Japan, most of it's vascular dementia, not Alzheimer's. In North America, most of it's Alzheimer's. You know, three quarters of it or more. Um, speaking about Alzheimer's, it's a metabolic disorder,
0: right? Diabetes like, you're saying is linked, perhaps, to inflammation. Yeah, what do you think about exactly.
1: that? Exactly. I mean, I mean, dementia, well, Alzheimer's, at least, is called a type three diabetes now by right. some people. Yes. And if you look at the work of Dale Brzeden, yes, you find there's 37 or 38 factors in the brain. This is your your area, the functional medicine area, mm-hmm. where you can look at the metabolic risk factors for the brain declining over time, address them and back out that decline. And brazedin has found a bunch of factors that seem to flip the brain from a synaptoblastic to synaptoclastic mode. So these are probably new terms for people. Um, They may be familiar with osteoclasts and osteoblasts in the bone. Mm -hmm. So bone is dynamic tissue. It remodels constantly. Mm -hmm. And if you're under strain, it gets thicker. If you're not under strain, it gets thinner. So the tissue that does that are cells that produce or consume bone. Mm -hmm. Osteoblasts build, osteoclasts consume bone, They're dynamic sort of regulated tissue, very carefully balanced Mm -hmm. Uh, and get thrown off with aging like you take statins, your osteoblasts get too uh, weak and the the osteoclasts make your bones brittle, for instance, under statins. Mm -hmm. That's one example. Well, the same thing may be happening, amyloid appears to be a signaling molecule or an innate immune molecule that tells the brain that the environment is dangerous and dirty like microbially dirty. Right. And you need to ramp up the amyloid to clean out the microbes. Well, it turns out that the high sugar Western diet of excess might do some of the same things for signaling stress. Mm. And these 37 factors of you know low insulin, uh, sorry, high insulin, low uh, cortisol, high cortisol, testosterone, you know homocysteine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If enough of these get out of whack, the brain goes into a synapse pruning mode and strips tissue. It looks like. So I believe, um, based on the work of Dale Brzezettin, that this is a metabolic disease like diabetes. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing the failure of a regulatory range as the disease endpoint. And I think that gets back to your very first question about mental health. I view most mental illness, mental health, as a failure of regulatory range. Humans need to operate stress, sleep, mood, attention under variable conditions. And we need to be able to perform in a survival congruent way under extremely different conditions. So we're good at performing adequately even if we aren't adequate in our resources. Mm -hmm. But when you hit the edge of that regulation, eventually things fall over. I mean, People often know more about body stuff. So insulin is a good example. You have sugar, insulin goes up, it goes back down again, theoretically. If you take all the sugar all the time, it goes up, stays up, and the tissue that listens to insulin becomes insensitive and you stop having insulin signaling. The same thing happens in uh, uh, Parkinson's. Dopamine is a signaling molecule involved in movement in the basal ganglia deep in the brain. Mm -hmm. The brain can change its sensitivity to dopamine really easily. So Parkinson's happens when your dopamine is very, very low. But you get no symptoms in Parkinson's until you've lost 75 to 80% of your dopamine neurons. Mm The system can tune itself to any absolute level of neurotransmitter. It doesn't care what your level of dopamine is or serotonin is. This is why I roll my eyes when people talk about neurotransmitter tests and their level of dopamine or increasing their dopamine. The absolute level of your neurotransmitters is absolutely meaningless otherwise you would have symptoms with small changes but Mm -hmm. you can have a massive shift of neurotransmitters with zero symptom change because the brain doesn't notice the dopamine shift. It tunes the whole system to the range of the signal it's sense. hearing. Right. Failure, but, that tuning is where problems happen and where illness and death and tissue problems and illness uh, of, of the mind happen. So, so if you have an acute change
0: that's, I guess, different than what the baseline is, that's what you're saying, that that's where the brain starts to or, sense
1: Or you're, you're asking the brain or body to handle a stressor outside of typical outside. range and, yes. and all, of the, all of the things that handle that, like stress. Yeah. You know, our anxiety, anxiety is a good example. Anxiety is a normal feature in the brain. Yes. If you're being chased by a tiger, be anxious. It. Please, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. And we have a, a circuit in the back midline of the brain. The posterior cingulate's job is to manage um, sort of a, a stream of information. It watches the environment and watches mm-hmm. behavior and looks mm-hmm. for a safety conflict. Mm-hmm. So if you're driving a car and you start talking to somebody behind you after a few seconds, there's a sense of oh, watch the road. Mm-hmm. That's the posterior singular throwing a flag in the play. So if you grow up in an environment that is dangerous, you learn, you better darn well keep that evaluator lit up. Right. And that's okay. It's helpful. It's useful for the brain to use the resources in that way. It may not be average across the planet, but it's useful in your environment. Yes. Well, if you learn the world is dangerous and better be maintained your awareness for many, many years, and then you're older, well, now you have developmental trauma. And your brain can't not look for tigers all of the time. Mm. And so it's a normal resource that got activated in a way that wasn't necessarily useful for you long-term. And that's the, the issue is that if that system can ramp up when necessary and ramp back down when it's not necessary, that's healthy. But if it ramps up and gets stuck in activation and stays lit up all the time, then we start giving that names like PTSD or being threat sensitive or you know, being driven by fear. But those are human explanations of the resource being overutilized because the brain learned it was an adaptation it better darn well make. So it's so but, interesting that these are signatures. That in effect,
0: like a PTSD, you have a signature happening in your brain. You don't even know that it's there. I mean, most people are not right. aware that these signatures are there. And even in your, in your training, you're not bringing up any of this trauma at all. You're
1: just saying... Right. I've read yeah, your The map. great thing about trauma, <laughs> yeah. exactly. You don't Man, have to work through she, trauma and neurofeedback. Yeah. You yeah. dial down the reactivity of the tissue. Mm-hmm. So if you're easily traumatized or triggered, have certain things that bother you, yeah. you just get less and less anxious and less and less triggered over time. It's kind of lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if you're working with a therapist, you can kind of peel back the layers and go deep, and you know, pull yeah. the scab off. If you want to, I can make you feel. Anything you want, deep, raw emotion. And if you're, if you're shut down because of a trauma history and work with a therapist who's doing some desensitization work, yes. I can find ways to facilitate that to break you open faster if that's what right. you want. But most clients, I would say, hey, let's work on your resilience and your mm. calm focus and your deep sleep before we try to work on your stress response because – I'm not a therapist. I don't want to be doing the therapy process with you necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not responsible. I really want to be your coach, your guy to go in and help you sort your brain out. I, I joke now that we're somewhere between a gym, uh, a mechanic, and a spa at Deep Brain. <laughs> yeah, so, so, the,
0: so that's interesting to me because what you're saying is that uh, every, like almost everybody can probably have something to improve themselves here. Is that not right? Only I mean, people with brains, only yeah. have a brain. <laughs> but it's not that you come across and say, this is an exceptional brain, there's nothing to be done here, you're perfect. That Does not does that happen or ne- there's I've always I've some... worked with a few <laughs> thousand
1: people, I've never seen that. There's I always... have seen the occasional person, there's been about five people I've mapped. Mm-hmm. Where I look at their brain maps and they go, oh, you're pretty much typical in every way, and there's no big statistical outliers. It doesn't mean the person's not experiencing performance bottlenecks they care about and can perceive and can describe. Mm. We can go after and see what happens. It just means that statistically at a population level, you don't look unusual, but you can still have things getting in your way.
0: Yeah, you can always improve SMR or something, right? Like if somebody is even typical, there's always something you could potentially improve and get better at.
1: Yeah, and and my clients, usually those who come in with a problem, Mm -hmm. they move from a fix to a fitness perspective over time. Where are like, great, get rid of my ADHD, now can I please work on some laser-like focus?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, we can do that now. Or you fix your anxiety, now it's time to break open that generative wellspring of ideas and emotions for creativity. Or you, you know, get your ADHD sorted out, and now you want to boost your T-cells, with relaxation work, for instance. You can do that kind of stuff with neurofeedback. Very effectively boost T-cells, like body things. Or you have chronic pain, you want to work on over time. So it's not so much about just cognitive things, nor is it about illness care. It's really, again, more like fitness. And you might work with your personal trainer in your gym on a huge range of things. Mm -hmm. But from their perspective, it's the whole machine that they're trying to help you tune up. And that might fix a problem from your perspective, or it might make you optimal from your perspective. From my perspective, it's about getting the resource bottlenecks out of the way. You'll figure out what to call it. You'll figure out how to lean into your own new resources. The joke I tell here is that you know, if I take you out of the VW Bug and put you in a Tesla, your driving changes. Yeah, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out. <laughs> so, you know, one thing I
0: found so interesting is when I did my brain mapping. I, I mean, I thought it was just fine, and then you said, "Oh, yeah, there's you have a, perhaps brain trauma here, and you're not sleeping so well." I mean, it was very interesting that, and then I thought, "Oh, maybe this is maybe whatever I'm experiencing is not what the best could be." I mean, maybe I am experiencing all these things. And most people just go through life not realizing mm. that something is
1: as impacting them. Yeah, it's very true. And I, I have a biased sample, of course. Folks come to see me usually when they know they want to work on things. But mm-hmm. you know, a third of my clients are peak performers, You know, Ben Greenfield, Olympic athletes, those kind of guys. Mm-hmm. And most of these people don't have any identified symptom problems. They're actually high performers, they're CEOs, right. they're super high powered. And I don't know a single one of those people I've looked at mm-hmm. where I didn't find some anxiety, some poor sleep, some concussion history, mm. but, you know, again, it's not so much like here's what's wrong, it's like here's some targets, here's some things we can go after for you. Right. Um, so, and I've had clients come in and say, I have no problems, this, every so often, I, ha- I kind of hate this, but <laughs> kinda of love it, I have no problems, can you make me better? <laughs> and they don't give me any goals. Right, that's And we look at their brain and go, okay, it looks pretty good, but you, you have no, okay, let's just see. And they get... I have one client. She put up a uh, a, a um, uh, testimonial on Yelp recently for us, where she's a musician. Mm-hmm. She came in and she said, "Nothing's wrong, but I like this idea of making myself better. Fix me." Okay, nothing's wrong, but so we trained her broadly, mm-hmm. and then about six weeks in, she felt her piano playing um, next leveled, and she felt that she got more creative. Mm-hmm. She, she was composing by you know in, spontaneously all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And so for her, it showed up as increased access to creativity in a skill she had been working on for 30 years mm-hmm. and she was an experienced pianist. But she suddenly felt like she was able to emote and express and be creative in a way she never had before. Mm-hmm. But she didn't ask me for more creativity, she asked me to tune her brain up. And I just did broad things and she was like, oh my God, I'm unbelievably creative now. So Maybe. you can just do broad things and see what happens, too, which is kind of fun. We can't go
0: backwards, right? I mean, somebody like that who's an experienced pianist and is off the charts in one particular part of their brain, we can't, make, we can't create harm. Can we? We can. Oh, we, we can. can. So how yeah, do you but make you have sure to work that doesn't happen? Okay. All you right. have to
1: work at it. So if I train your brain in the wrong direction,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you'll feel it. Let's say let's say I'm training you for focus and you have some anxiety and we push a little hard mm. and you walk out of here focused but then later on tonight you're like wow I can't shut my mind off I'm super focused and you can't you know down regulate again and you let us know the next day wow I uh, my sleep onset was actually kind of thrown off I was lying there kind of wide awake for an extra hour what what happened there that was weird but it's not permanent say, oh, Yeah it's These not are- permanent unless you don't tell us mm. And we train you again. (laughs) Same way. It happens stronger. You know, years ago when I was working as a senior tech for somebody else, Mm -hmm. a um, a mom came in with her son. The son was an eight year old. He crawled in, crawled under the desk, was flapping his hands, high pitched whining, rocking back and forth, really classic, profound autism symptoms. Right. Supposedly, three months before, he was somewhat verbal, had no self stimming, and was actually making some eye contact. But she went and got a neurofeedback system, found a protocol on the internet, trained him 80 times in the next four months. He kept getting worse. He regressed back to his two-year-old autistic self wow. over the next several months. But she thought, hey, it's neurofeedback. It works on autism. I must keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And she ba- created some significant impairments of his resources. Mm-hmm. And she, of course, was beside herself when she came to see us and feeling very guilty. We mapped his brain, dialed the protocols in for him over a few months. And that kid graduated valedictorian from his liberal arts college a few years ago wow. in the Northeast.
0: I'd love to even spend a whole other episode on autism because there's so many viewers out there with, mm. uh, with those conditions. And it's so, so complex, of course. Yeah. You know, it's,
1: uh, the autism's almost at this point. Yeah.
0: So. So, but I think we're going to have to end soon. So how would people uh, contact you if they want to? Uh, to try this out or yeah, I'd love
1: know. to hear about everyone's quirky brains, and if you want some help understanding your brain, we're here for you. Um, we have quite a lot of social media, uh, peakbraininstitute.com is the main website. Okay. Um, I okay. offer a lot of free uh, webinars, free consults, free calls, I'm happy to talk about your brain. And then um, the Peak Brain LA is the main social media handle, so all our Instagram and Twitter and Facebook is PeakBrainLA. LA. Um, Again, we always are happy to do uh, lots of talk about your brain. If you're near one of the centers, we have large centers in uh, Costa Mesa, which is Orange County, uh, Los Angeles, and St. Louis. Mm -hmm. There's free meditation classes and free class uh, brain health talks and other activities several times a week. So um, it's, it's hard in LA to find free meditation classes that are any good and we got tired of that, so we offer really amazingly high quality teachers several times a week to come in and practice with for free. So you don't have to pay us to come work with us. You just have to want to work on your brain, and we'll find ways to get you to improve your performance, no matter if you can do neurofeedback or not. If you want to do neurofeedback, then that's the heavy lifter, and that's the thing we can get you some rapid results in a very short amount of time, but there Mm -hmm. are lots of ways to work on your brain, you know. Toward that end, uh, I'll leave you one little tidbit. We sure. never charge people for a second brain map, which means once we map your brain, yes. you're welcome to come back every six months and check on your own brain health. Wow! And I don't write you long reports. I teach you how to read your own brain data. Mm-hmm. So as we oh, together yes. work on your brain over many many months, you become your own expert. And mm-hmm. so it's a one-time fee for brain mapping at Peak Brain, and then brains are pretty stable. So if you go back and do some meditation, nootropics. Red light therapy and create lots of change. You then have a tool to look under the covers and look for those signatures you were talking about. Once you know that you have these signatures and you can correlate them with what you're feeling and what your performance is doing, I think you know data is really useful from a quantified self, of course, biohacker perspective. It is, but you know information is power, and knowing that you have a little injury or some slowed processing or problems with deep sleep can help you work around those problems, even if you aren't doing biofeedback. There's lots of things you can do to minimize these resource bottlenecks getting in your way, essentially. Right.
0: And so, uh, for the initial mapping, they need to come
1: into a center, I I believe, and then they can do the training at home, even if remotely, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 39% of my clients train themselves at home. We do a two or three day intensive workshop in one of the big offices, map your brain, do attention testing, do a half dozen practice sessions of neurofeedback, teaching you how to be your own neurofeedback person. And then you leave with equipment, knowing sort of how to do it, but not what to do. And we do a three-month period of coaching where we do weekly calls, live chat support every day, mm-hmm. um, surveys in the morning asking what your sleep is doing, surveys in the evening asking what your day is doing. Mm-hmm. And then we just kind of give you protocols and your tech support because it takes some dialing in. But learning to stick wires to your head run software isn't that hard. So we teach you that and then support you for the first few months to make sure you get over the hump of individualizing the process and troubleshooting. And then eventually you're off uh, training yourself Long term with no charge, which is nice. So I think for next time
0: to the viewers that we're going to, uh, I'm going to do this. I'm actually going to go forward with it. So I'd love maybe next great. time we can go through my data sure. and, and we can show people how it actually happens in real life. Sure. Good? Yeah. Okay. That's great. All right. Okay. Thank you so much, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank and you for having me, sir. Thank you. Hope to meet in person soon. Absolutely. Okay. Thank. Take care. Bye bye.